Hello and welcome to Map Bites, episode 123. I'm Elaine Giles and I'm here with my co-host Mike Thomas. In this episode, oh, I see you're getting me back for last time. Revenge is sweet. It's a wonder anyone can remember that far back. Don't you start. Just get on with it. In this episode, diabolically dodgy doings with disabled dongles and frolicking with the furball. So, has much happened since the last show? Loads. But the most important is the arrival of a new member of the MacBytes family. Many of you will remember our beautiful boy, Mayor. It was 2001 when he arrived and our lives were changed forever. A bigger bundle of fun you could never meet. A Samoid with the widest smile on the planet and the sweetest nature to go with it. We had 13 and a half fantastic, fun-filled years with him. We paid tribute to him and the joy that he brought into our lives in Matt Bites episode 89, which was called Untethered in Timpoli. Now, despite almost everyone we knew asking when we were going to get another dog, we always said we wouldn't go looking for one. Being honest, we'd also lost my dad just before Maya and mum just after him. We weren't looking to replace them either. A dog person will understand the parallels there. Anyway, fast forward a few months after Maya died and one night Mike was late home. I knew he was almost home. This is how come this is tech related. Because I checked find my friends and he was parked up just round the corner. Yes, that was when I FaceTimed you. Oh, you certainly did. And there you were talking with a young lady who had a Samoyed puppy in her arms. The first one we'd seen since Maya died. She was gorgeous. She was called Lola. Fast forward three years and we met a lady in the park walking a Samoyed. She was walking her daughter's dog and we got talking. You asked her the dog's name. It was Lola. It was only the pup you'd met on the way home three years earlier. She was still positively perfect in every way. Obviously, we did the honourable thing and offered to take her for a walk if they ever needed a helping hand. And a few weeks later, we took that lovely girl out for a walk. Within the month, she'd had her first sleepover with us. That was just before Christmas 2018. Yes, and we've had many adventures and sleepovers since then. And on the 1st of October 2019, we adopted her. We have had a fabulous three months watching her settle in. So welcome to the family, Lola. Yes, her name is Lola. She She is is a a show dog. dog. So where were we up to when our lives were turned wonderfully upside down by the arrival of our new baby? Oh, yes. That last show was released the day before the iPhone 11 event. We were thrilled. No retail update to open the show. There we were, scrambling to get our feet off the desks where we'd firmly planted them until the show actually got interesting. Only to be greeted with games demos. Games demos to open the show. Anyone listening on the MacBytes Alternative Commentary will have witnessed my unmitigated delight. In fact, Jane told me afterwards she'd switched to our alternative commentary during the games demos for the sheer pleasure of witnessing my suffering. Luckily, at some point, before I fell unconscious, the games demos stopped. The MacBiters know how we really love our games demos. Well, you can stop goading me. Imagine Mike's abject horror when he hears this one. Civilization comes to excel as a game. I'm not actually sure I know what that means. 
Me neither, but do you remember the flight simulator easter egg in Excel 97? I used to show that as a time filler at the end of my courses back in the day. I do. I got in trouble for demoing that, but I digress. While I was relaxing at the lack of mention of makeup on Memojis, it's another classic from last year, I was hit with a new word. Slofy. Slofy! Take cover she's off. On what planet is that a thing? Now, seriously, in almost three months since that event, have you ever heard anyone utter the word slofy? Now you mention it, no, I haven't. Exactly. Trying far too hard to be cool there, Apple. And that wasn't even the weirdest thing. We had a new gate. The phones weren't out even at this stage and there was a new gate. Do you recall? No, I think that one passed me by. Holegate. Trypophobia. The fear of holes. Not just any holes, mind. Oh, no. Holes in a specific configuration. A specific configuration of closely placed holes. Now, as luck would have it, for those in search of the next great gate, the placement of the lens on the back of the new iPhones were in a trypophobic-inducing array. So, clustered hole gate. Oh, yes, it really is a thing. But never mind the phone. What at that stage were we still waiting for? Apple tag? The AR headset? Apple TV? iPad Pro refresh? Uh, MacBook Pro? And BIN 2.0? Don't forget Jane's 4K monitor, although I think she had given up on that one. Hadn't we all? But it did mean potentially there was enough for another event in October. We were convinced. We were wrong. But they did announce another event for December. Unusual, we thought. Mm, always welcome, though. Indeed. We scheduled coverage. I didn't make it. No, you were ill. You got the best of that, I can assure you. It has now been memorialised in Apple folklore as the Great Eventless Event. Not a major disaster. Unless, of course, you have a chat room full of folks intending to follow along with you during said event. You didn't, did you? She most certainly did. I manfully carried on for almost two hours with absolutely no news from inside the Faraday cage that was the great no event, Apple event of December 2019. Why announce something as an event that was actually a press briefing preparing folks for the App Awards announced much later that night? To play with your mind, obviously. Anyway, back to the event, the first one, the one with the iPhone. We were ordering, weren't we? We were. For the first time in a while... When was my last new iPhone? iPhone 7. Yes, but it completely escapes me when that was. Two years ago. Mm. No, it was more than that. Because I've skipped the 8, the 10, the 10X, Max, whatever. Can't remember. It wasn't 2014. I don't think it was 2015. I, th I think it could have been 2016. But never mind. I was ready with nine different devices, primed ready for action. The Apple Store was open on all nine of them. It's not that I don't trust Apple to be egalitarian with their ordering system. Mm, but you don't. Bitter experience has proved it seems weighted to favour those stateside. I've never actually managed to secure an iPhone for launch day delivery with a pre-order. 
actually, that's not true. I did once. And then it turned into a bait and switch nightmare. It was shown as launch day delivery until I pressed the buy button, at which point it instantly slipped by two weeks. My iPhone 6 Plus, that was. To say I played holy hell with them was an understatement. Not only did they manage to get one to me within 36 hours of launch, which on the, the day I placed the order was completely impossible, it would have been sooner, but the intervening day was a Sunday. I also persuaded them compensation was a grand idea. And they agreed? Oh, eventually, yes. I can be very persuasive with a law degree and an attitude behind me. Um, so we've had launch day phones, obviously, but only with store pickup. And all the joys that that brought over the years. Shall we reminisce? Go on. iPhone 3G, seven hour wait. You weren't allowed to even go to the toilet, were you? <laughs> you lost your place in the queue. It was like one of those funny game shows. Is it Japan? The Japanese endurance game shows. That was that one. Then there was the iPhone 4. The car park struck back. Uh, the 4S, that was the first Siri phone. The scalpers were accosting us in the queue at Liverpool 1. Anyway, I was poised, me and my nine devices, with half an eye on Twitter. Needless to say, the stateside pre-orders were rolling in thick and fast, at least three minutes before the first of my devices pinged into life. Eventually, one did. A 2017 10.5-inch iPad Pro. Bit random. I've got newer devices. I've got more powerful devices. But no, it was that one. I grabbed it. I raced through the order page only for disaster to strike. You can only order one at a time. Now, to be precise, you can only configure one device at a time and then add it to the back. But I just wanted to order two identical iPhones. A decision needed to be made. Configure and buy one and then go back and configure and buy the other or add the first to the bag, then configure the second and add that to the bag before purchasing. Mm. I decided to buy the first one before fiddling with the second. On the basis, it gave us the best chance for launch day delivery for at least one device. Luckily, I managed to get back in there, configure the second phone and get checked out with launch day delivery. A bit early for a Christmas miracle, but I'm claiming that this, is, this ordering first was indeed miraculous. Well, either that or nobody else wanted an iPhone. So the crisis was over then? <laughs> Not so fast, boy. The dispatch was next. Talk about slow burn. You usually get your order's agonisingly complex journey relayed to you in episodes over about a week. This time, nothing. Nothing? Nothing over the weekend. Nothing on Monday. By Tuesday, I was checking every hour. Nothing. Wednesday, nothing. By Thursday, day before supposed delivery, I was checking every 10 minutes. Nothing. This was not looking good. Not good at all. I had the Apple orders page open on three devices, monitoring it. Nothing. I was gearing up for a fight when a notification arrived. From Apple? No. From DPD saying that they had my parcel and would be delivering it on Friday. What parcel, thinks I, as I do the mental gymnastics involved in going through everything I've ordered the preceding week to work out what they had possession of? You mean it was the phones? Well, since Apple had studiously avoided dispatching them at, at all, that did seem unlikely. However, having ruled out it being anything else, I began to get quite excited, thinking it was indeed the missing in action iPhones. Eventually, Four hours after DPD told me that they would be delivering my parcel on Friday, Apple finally confirmed they'd actually dispatched them. 
For crying out loud, Apple. No wonder you put heart monitoring on the watch. Mine was playing the 1812 Overture, replete with fireworks by the time you'd finally confirmed dispatch. So, after the drama of ordering and dispatch, what could possibly happen on delivery day to match the drama? (laughs) Never underestimate the opportunity for the seemingly simple to cause grief. DPD are fabulous. DPD are actually beyond fabulous. They usually deliver here around 10.30am or 1.30pm, like clockwork. Well, with a single exception of the first-gen Apple Pencil. Mm, Not likely to forget that drama. Oh no, they said my pencil was out for delivery. Got to 4.30, no sign of him. I rang. It was out for delivery. Got to 6pm, no sign. I rang again. It's out for delivery. Can I just mention it was a Friday? If it didn't arrive that day, it would be Monday at the earliest. If you weren't arrested for breaking into the depot to retrieve it yourself before then. Indeed. Another two hours passed by. You were incandescent with rage by then. Tracking on the website was as much use as trying to track Santa Claus in July. It got to 8pm. I rang them again. They swore blind it would arrive. Eventually at 10pm, Damien turned up with my pencil. So, the iPhone 11 delivery. I was up at stupid o'clock, and I was in my DPD app before the lark. I was allocated a delivery slot. 4.29pm to 5.29pm. What? That was almost nine hours away. Of more significance, much more significance, was the fact that we needed to leave MacBytes headquarters by 5pm to attend a gala dinner. Two minutes past four arrived. I was getting twitchy. But a message arrived. Tony was 30 minutes away. Yes, we could still do this thing. Another message. Tony was making delivery 108 and I was 112. Still looking good. Another message. Tony had just made delivery 111 and he was on his way to me. Me? I was patrolling the front door with as much determination as Mayor in his youth chasing a squirrel. Tony was leaving a house literally 200 yards from me. What could possibly go wrong? I waited and waited and waited. Nothing. Where was Tony? Five minutes goes by. Nothing. Eight minutes goes by. Nothing. I was all for heading out to look for him when I spot it. Spot what? Spot the DPD van coming round the corner. Tony was finally here. I was videoing the arrival. So he's on camera explaining where he'd been. Which was? Filling the van up at the petrol station round the corner. Seriously? Yes. But fear not, it won't be happening again, as he's had his expectations firmly realigned. He now knows to fill up after he's delivered my tech toys and not before. By the way, I don't know where Damien the DPD delivery man has gone. I spent years training him and it looks like Tony's going to need bringing up to speed with my exacting requirements on launch days. But hey, at least they'd arrived. And set up. Well, that was going to be a challenge since by this stage it was 4.50pm and I wasn't dressed yet. Hold it right there. You mean you greeted Tony in the nude? That would certainly explain his dawdling at the petrol station. Poor man. No! I mean, I wasn't in my finery for the gala dinner. And there's a slight matter of unboxing the thing and getting it to a stage where it was actually usable. There's about five hours gone right there. 
My thinking exactly. But failure wasn't an option, and it would be ridiculous to have £2,000 worth of the latest tech sat at home when we could be taking fabulous night mode photos with it at the gala dinner. We dived in. Unboxed in record time. Minimal setup, transferred from our existing phones, and we were off. I think you should mention that you were actually dressed by this stage. Oh, yes. I'd slung something suitable on. Still looked like I'd been dragged through a hedge backwards in the hair department, though. But priorities. And my phone was my priority. Now, the gala dinner wasn't exactly in the dark, but it certainly wasn't daylight either. Phone coped admirably well. Better than I'd hoped, to be honest. Especially given the lack of time I'd had to investigate how to actually get the best out of it. I think my biggest problem was picking it up the wrong way. And that was because of the lack of a home button. The case I'd bought didn't help, as it's only like a bumper with a back. Yours is much more help in that regard. True. I got a proper case with a front cover, a back cover, a stand so I can prop it up and watch the footy. But actually, I often leave it flat on the desk with the front cover flipped round so the front is exposed. Although that's not helpful for taking photos. So I actually can't always tell if it's the right way up either. Hmm. Next thing that obviously you notice straight away is the face ID because you've got to train that. And I'd already had face ID on my iPad Pro and I wasn't expecting it to be much better, to be honest. And it actually is. I've had no failures at all, even in the pitch black of the MacBytes bedroom, with or without my glasses. But your experience wasn't quite so smooth, was it? It wasn't. I had to redo the face recognition with my glasses on and without my glasses on. However, that didn't fix the pitch black in the MacBytes bedroom issue. That remains an outstanding issue. And what I find is when I'm in bed, I have to use the passcode to get into the phone. That's why I wanted to be able to use Touch ID anywhere on the screen. You know that phone that we briefly looked at? Uh, a one something? Yeah. Was it a, a something one or a one, one something? One plus or something. That's the right, a one plus. And that had on the entire, the entire screen of it, you can touch anywhere and the thumbprint will unlock it, which would be very cool. Now, one thing I almost forgot... We'd had a couple of wireless chargers for the AirPods we bought back in March, and they were working really well for the AirPods. So what I'd almost forgotten was that this had wireless charging, and it does. It works really well. In fact, I've got more trouble trying to use it with a cable. I have one Apple original cable that I keep for an older iPad. The older iPad won't charge with anything but this one cable. Every other cable that works absolutely fine on everything else, this iPad doesn't want to know. I, so because of that, I know there is definitely nothing wrong with the cable, but it refuses point blank to charge the phone, though. But our issues were slight by comparison, weren't they? With poor Johnny I. He had it much worse than we did during the excitement of launch day. Poor Johnny's toy arrived. Dead on arrival. <coughs> Come on, Apple, really? Luckily, he did manage to sneak in a Genius Bar appointment and Apple did the decent thing. But you know what? We don't need these hairy, scary issues on launch day, do we? No, we don't. We could definitely do without them. Which brings us neatly on. See what I did there? Apple Care subscriptions. Now, we all know that Apple love their subscriptions. They're also like um, a pusher, pushing them on to every other app developer, who in turn pushed them on to us. But this one I'd been reading in the days leading up to it that they were offering two different options for purchasing AppleCare. 
which instantly reminded me of Steve Jobs. Keep it simple, stupid. Don't make me think. You know, at the point I'm purchasing, do I want A or do I want B? No, I want a phone. Let me not think about anything else. There is the standard three-year coverage versus a monthly payment, which could run longer than three years, as long as you carried on paying. Now, I was actually still pondering what to do about that as I tried to pre-order the two iPhones on the great day. Luckily, when I got through to that stage, it was pick, you know, put, do, do you want Apple Care or not? There wasn't an option. So there was just the one option. It's one less thing to think about, though, isn't it? My sentiments, exactly. Only a matter of time, though. If there's a way to extract money from you, Apple will find it. Now, one more thing happened during our little break. I was invited to join the Making Alexa Smarter thing. The what? It's called Alexa Answers. And basically, Amazon sends you questions. You answer them and they crowdsource answers from those provided. It's like an unpaid zero-hours contract, really. I know the feeling. I'm sure you feel you're smart enough already. Of course I am. And nobody can tell you anything anyway. Oh, nicely done, Lady Siri. And something else new in 2019 for Apple. Microsoft Office finally arrived in the App Store. No, don't do it. Well, not the giving the money part via the App Store bit anyway. Downloading from the App Store does not equal purchasing via the App Store in terms of cash. Um, we actually did. Do you remember me doing the purchase live during and after hours? I do. I explained that I already had an account and therefore it was handy to have the option to download via the App Store in an emergency. Pure convenience, nothing else. But if you have a subscri subscription direct with Microsoft, you can use it with the version that you download from the App Store to get all of the benefits and not actually pay a penny more. I agree with the not buying from Apple bit, but I went a bit further. I actually wrote a blog post about why buying the standalone version is a bad idea. And in a nutshell, the standalone version is about 18 months behind the, well, it's, it's basically a snapshot of the Office 365 version. So you're missing out on a lot of the functionality. A good example of that is the XLOOKUP function in Excel, which you will only get if you subscribe to Office 365. So you're not going to get it on these standalone versions. Which was basically what I was attempting to explain in After Hours. I think there are far too many ways to buy it and the ramifications of each method are not actually clear. So people are buying something and maybe it's not the right something for them. I think it's a little bit complicated these days. It is. And if you remember in the last show, I talked about different ways of buying Microsoft Office. Now, as part of my prep and research, the things I do for you, Mac writers, I logged into the Office 365 portal, which is uh, office.com, to check how many devices I was logged into. And I found that my iMac wasn't listed. What was listed was my Windows laptop, my Surface and my virtual machine. So I fired up Excel on my Mac and I signed out of my Office 365 account. That was a big mistake because it wouldn't let me sign back in. And without being signed in, basically what I had was a read-only copy of Office. I could create a new file 
I could add text, but most of the ribbon options and ribbon buttons were greyed out. I could open existing files, but again, most of the ribbon buttons were greyed out. And it affected all the apps, Excel, Word, PowerPoint. When I selected sign in from the menu, it asked me for my Office 365 email address and then asked me for my password. And at that point, the dialog box just said loading. And I tried this twice over two days, both times at six in the morning and both times I left it all day whilst I was out at work. And when I came back, it still said loading. So I decided the only way to fix it was to nuke Office. So I deleted the application files out of the applications folder, and then I had to delete a bunch of files from the containers folder in the library folder. The process is documented, by the way, in a link in the show notes. It's a little bit, uh, little bit technical in terms of remembering which folder. I then logged back into the Office 365 portal and clicked the Install Office button to reinstall Office. Ten minutes later, with Office reinstalled on my Mac, I was able to run Excel and sign in. And that also signed me in to the other Office apps, Word and PowerPoint. I logged back into the Office portal, but still the iMac wasn't showing up. And when I clicked Don't See Your Device, I got a choice of Add a PC, add a Surface, add an Xbox, or add a phone. There was no add a Mac. So I clicked add a PC. Step two was choose the operating system. And the only option was Windows. There was no option for Mac. So that begs the question, can I be signed into Office on as many Macs as I like? And does being signed in on a Mac not count against my limit of five devices? Well, after that fiasco, I'm not doing any more research to find out. <laughs> Wise move. That is my number one, well, possibly the price, uh, my, my number one argument against activated software. What if you can't activate it <laughs> and you need it and you need it now? It's ridiculous, especially if you can only activate it on one machine. And I do have apps like that. Oh, dear. Now, talking of VMs and Windows, an old favourite of ours has been on a buying splurge, spending £2.5 on acquiring another company. It's a shame that the app of theirs we used to use hasn't been shown as much love. It's VMware, and we used to use VMware Fusion. Now, we're long since switched to Parallels, despite the fact we completely missed Corel buying them. Remember that one? Yeah. I just wish companies would leave each other alone instead of getting all incestuous with each other. Just provide the best service. It doesn't mean one company owning the lot. But yeah, they've um, gone and bought another company, so I don't think they'll be giving Fusion any more love anytime soon either. No, I'm going to stick with Parallels, I think. I try not to use it at all. Works well enough for me. But on to USB dongle calamity. Nothing to do with me. No. Which admittedly makes a change. For once. Over to you, dear. For once. What did oh, you break? At work, we have a whole range of devices that, that can be used to deliver a presentation or display content from our laptops in a meeting or a training session. At the top end, we have a few Microsoft Surface Hubs. 
And if you're not familiar with the Surface Hub, it's an 84-inch touchscreen device that runs Windows 10. It can be wall-mounted or it can be on wheels, so it can be portable. And it includes digital whiteboard functionality, but uh, it can also be used to join a Skype call. So imagine the scenario. 10 people in a meeting room. And instead of all 10 people having their laptop there, you have this big hub, this big surface hub. And the hub itself can log into Skype meeting. And then you can have another person working remotely. They join the Skype meeting from their laptop. They share their screen. And then what is on their screen is displayed on the hub for everyone in the meeting to see. We also have some standard wall-mounted plasma screens with HDMI connectors. So you plug the HDMI cable into the HDMI port on your laptop and away you go. Mm. And we also have a few normal projectors with VGA connectors. They can be ceiling mounted and some of them are standalone, which is great fun when your laptop doesn't have a VGA port. Last year, I was asked to deliver some training. So I got to the room and I found they were using one of these projectors. And I had to nip to IT and ask to borrow a VGA to HDMI dongle. It was supposed to be a short term loan, but don't tell anyone. I still have it in my bag, but it does get regular use. A few weeks ago, I went to one of our sites. I go there every month to deliver face to face training and provide support. And they use a system called ClickShare. And that lets you connect your laptop to a projector wirelessly. So you stick this ClickShare USB dongle into your laptop and the dongle has some files on it. It's got an .exe file for Windows and it's got a .dmg file for Mac. It can be used in, in either system. So you open File Explorer or Finder and the dongle is seen as a device and assigned a drive letter if it's Windows and it'll be seen as a device on the Mac. So then you run the .exe or the .dmg file and this launches the ClickShare application. You then click the share button in the click share application and hey presto, what's on your laptop screen is sent to the ceiling or wall mounted projector. Now, this particular day, I put the dongle into the USB slot. Nothing. I thought, well, maybe the dongle's got a problem. So I tried two more dongles. Nothing. I rebooted the old turn it off and turn it on again. Still nothing. Then I realised that I'm part of a pilot that the company launched recently to stop USB devices being used. It's supposed to stop the threat of viruses. Now, it's always been against company IT usage policy to use pen drives, but people do it anyway. So it's got to the stage where the only way to stop them is to physically disable them. And the pilot involves people working in IT. And if it's successful, it'll be rolled out company-wide. Basically, any USB device inserted into a laptop, if it contains files, and that's the important bit, it'll be disabled. So it's not just pen drives, it's any USB device with files. And because this ClickShare dongle contains files, Windows refuse to recognise it. 
as I said, same with a USB pen drive, same with an iPhone. I actually often plug my iPhone into my work laptop for two reasons. One, to copy photos across and two, to give it a quick charge if there aren't enough sockets in the room I'm in. So I plugged my iPhone in and a message appeared that said, you don't have permission to access this device. Now, before the pilot, the iPhone was assigned a drive letter. So I ended up delivering this training without being able to demo the applications I was talking about. Luckily, it was a new starter induction course, so I was able to talk about the systems and the applications. It wasn't critical that the people being trained saw them. You'll appreciate this one. It took me back to my early days of delivering training when we had no projectors. The trainer didn't even have a PC. All we had was a whiteboard and some coloured pens. And a tablet of stone and a chisel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, the problem was that later in the day I was delivering a OneNote session and because the attendees didn't have their laptops, I needed to connect my laptop to a projector so they could see the application. IT lent me a really tiny HDMI projector. It was literally useless. I had to stand it on a box and when I projected it onto the wall, it was the size of the postage stamp. Luckily, I managed to find a spare projector in another meeting room, so I borrowed that. I reported the problem with the ClickShare dongles to our IT people who said, oh, we were aware of the issue and we're working with ClickShare to find a fix. In the meantime, all they can do is take me off the pilot, which suits me totally. Do you know, that kind of thing drives me insane. That's not an issue that they should be aware of and they're working on. It's catastrophic. Stop everything until you fix that. Ugh, drives me mad. Now, on to Jane's perplexing problem, as promised last time. Jane said, a question for MacBytes. My six-year-old 750 gig SSD MacBook Pro is rapidly running out of storage space with only 23 gig free. I've increased my iCloud online storage to the maximum two terabytes and I've uploaded my photos to iCloud storage for the Photos app. Photos currently take up 261 gig of my SSD. Before I take the preference to optimise Mac storage in the Photos app, does the MacBytes crew have any sage and wise thoughts or comments on my doing so? Thank you in anticipation of your expert views and opinions. Oh, Jane. <laughs> this has been interesting, hasn't it, Mike? Very. Oh, very. Right. I would start by saying this. How much free storage do you need? <laughs> now, that might seem strange, but... I've got three machines that I use consistently. My iMac is running Mojave. It has a one terabyte SSD and it will run happily with as little as 30 gig of free space. Now, it's not ideal and it's probably stuff I've downloaded. Now, because of that, it means I can manually free up space. But it's, there's hardly any difference between me looking at it running with 300 gig free or 30. It behaves the same. My MacBook Air 2018 Mojave goes crazy if it's got as much as 150 gig free of 500. It's sluggish. It stops start. There's things on the screen. It just behaves really badly. So I have to try and make sure that I've got at least 50% of the drive free. 
Now, you could say, well, it's, it's a laptop thing. But I also have a MacBook Air from 2012. Yes, it's eight years old. It's got Mojave on it. And it has a... I mean, we've gone from the iMac with a terabyte, the MacBook Air 2018 with 500, to this 2012 MacBook Air with 256 gig SSD. And that's fine with as little as 20 left. So the first benchmark you need to work out is how much space do you need free on the machine that you're talking about for it to behave at least semi-optimally. And I'm finding I need a lot more space on my MacBook Air, the newest one, than anything else. So that's what I would say first. And you'll get a feel for that from your own machine. I mean, you, didn't you say you had about 50% of one terabyte free? Yeah, so you're not seeing any performance issues with that at all. No. As you started eating into it and using more, you probably would. It might be different for you. I don't know upon what basis it's doing that. Unless this MacBook Air needs triage at the Genius Bar, which is, does not bear thinking about. But what I've decided to do with that one is keep a lot more storage free on it. So that's your first step. The next step, when you've worked out what's optimum. Um, you need to find out what's actually taking up the space. You may have enough room for your photos if you offloaded something else. It's going to depend. So photos and videos usually are the top storage hogs, uh, definitely for me. You need to go to the Apple icon about this Mac storage. And from there, it will show you how much space you have free, but it will also show you in bands what is taking up the storage that's used. So if the Photos app is a big factor, then turning on optimised storage for iCloud Photos might help out. But be warned, from our experience working with iCloud, it can also be a nightmare. What the option is supposed to do is to free up storage space for you to use for other purposes. I think when I explained it to you, you were like, well, yeah, of course, that's what it does, weren't you? Mm, yeah. Mm. Now, then there's what the option actually does. It potentially frees up storage space for you to use for other purposes. Now, there's a huge difference there between freeing up storage space and potentially freeing up storage space. The key to understanding it all is the second part of the text, which you'll find underneath the option. So, the first bit of the option reads, store full resolution photos and video in iCloud. So far, so good. It's the second bit. Originals will also be stored on this Mac if you have enough free space. So depending on the amount of storage you have available on your Mac, the option may free up some space, but it's also just as possible it won't. So what I found with mine, um, now I don't do that, but as, as we'll, I'll give a few scenarios as we move through this to explain it, but I don't do that and I did enable it, made no difference whatsoever. So the iCloud options you have, you actually have two completely independent storage management options. One is iCloud Drive and the second is Photos. The options that are available for each one of those sound similar you're just dealing with different data types separately. So Apple have provided photo management in addition to managing iCloud Drive, but separate from it. So you can play around with both of them and they both have 
similar options. But we're working on the principle that Jane wants to try and offload some of these photos and regain space that way. So let's look at scenario number one. Imagine that you have a one terabyte SSD and you've got 300 gig of it used. 50 gig of it, because you've checked, are photos. You enable the option. But you've got 700 gig free, plenty of storage. So it's quite possible nothing will happen, that no space will be freed up at all. Now, scenario number two, same one terabyte SSD, but 950 gig used. So you've just got 50 gig free. You also have in your 950, 50 gig of photos. So you enable the option. There's much less free storage space, so some may be freed up. But it's in the sole discretion of the macOS system. So the problems with that is that iCloud, by comparison to other cloud services, is a different beast. It's not Dropbox or Box or Google Drive or OneDrive. It's obviously much more integrated with macOS, and it has dedicated features for Photos and iCloud Drive, but that means there's much less control for the user. You cannot force macOS to release a specific amount of space that you require for a new project. So let's revisit scenario number two. Your one terabyte SSD, 950 used, 50 gig of photos. You enable the option. Some space may be freed up, but it's in the sole discretion of macOS, but you need a minimum of 100 gig free. So you manually remove 10 gig of files that you deem can go. You enable the option in the hope that all 50 gig of your photos are purged and replaced with the alternative lower quality images. And as long as they take up less than the 10 gig you freed, you would have 100 gig free for this new project. The problem is, there's no guarantee of that. Let's take a look at a different scenario. A one terabyte SSD, 950 gig used, and 400 gig of that is images and videos. You enable the option because you know, and this actually does happen to me, I think it happens to you less, Mike, but it could do. You have an incoming project and you know it's going to include huge video files you know you're going to need a minimum of 400 gig free. Mac OS purges all the images and replaces them with lower quality. If it did, that should solve the problem. But like I've said, no guarantee that will happen. So you have no control whatsoever over what iCloud does. Unless, which is where I'll hand over to Mike. Yeah, during our research, I came across some very interesting and useful information. Using the terminal, you can remove a local copy of a file or folder that's stored in iCloud Drive. The command is brctl space evict space name. I will put a link to an article in the show notes so you don't need to remember that. But name is the name of the file on iCloud Drive. And that will remove the local copy of the file, but keep it in iCloud Drive remotely. It also works on a folder. It removes local copies of all the files in that folder. 
but it's not 100% reliable. Files may randomly decide to download again a short while later. And that's especially annoying with large files because it's going to hog bandwidth and it's going to hog your time as it re-downloads these files. But the reason behind this is iCloud's intelligent algorithm for optimizing storage will take over sometime after you've entered that command and will decide that the file was used so recently that it should be stored locally. It usually ends up working after sometimes entering the command multiple times, but it's still not perfect. It seems very hit and miss to me. Another downside is loss of metadata, uh, with the result that finder previews might just show a blank file page and Spotlight won't be able to index the content of these files. Now, those two things, the loss of metadata and the random re-downloading, that won't happen if iCloud decides to remove a file. If you don't fancy getting down and dirty with a terminal, there's a free app that does the same thing via a button inside a finder window. So you select the file or a bunch of files or a folder and you click this button to remove the local copy. The app is called iCloud Control and I'll put a link in the show notes. But be aware that although the app still works, it's no longer in development. And that's because in Catalina, Apple added new functionality. If you right click on a file or folder in Finder, it will reveal a number of options as, as it always does on the right click menu. And those options include remove download, protect from removal and iCloud sharing. Now, having said that, these options on the right click were available in one of the betas and then removed before the final release. But we can see where Apple are heading. Hopefully, they'll add these back into a future release of Catalina or a future release of macOS. So right now, the iCloud Control app seems to be your best bet as long as you remember those caveats. Another issue that Jane's going to have to think about, though, is when you actually think about what you're doing with that, it's not individual photos, is it? Or your photos library. Yeah, that's to do with controlling data stored in iCloud Drive. So there's no granular level of control for photos. You might not have much in the way of data in Drive. It's horrible. It's horrible is is. is the upshot of it all, the, the lack of control is utterly ridiculous. I think if somebody needs to free up 261 gig, you mean press a button, it's gone. And now I've got those and that may or may not happen. So you may need to reclaim space in other ways. I call these my space hog apps. Um, as you know, Mike, because you sat and watched me and we were just looking at each other with like what happened there. Um, I was going through a hard drive. I was having a nightmare with this hard drive and I was in the library folder and I had an Evernote folder and it had eight gig in it, which seemed excessive. Um, 
So I said to you, uh, I'm going to update Evernote and see if it downloads even more stuff. And if there's a way to control that 8 gig, because I don't want to lose 8 gig. I ran it and the 8 gig changed to 10 meg. And we just looked at each other. Where did that go? The actual space free on the drive did not change. And it started downloading more stuff, at which point I thought I'm going to run out of space here. Um, actually, I didn't. And for some reason, it had just decided to cache 8 gig of Evernote stuff for two years and then purge the lot. So you may find that you can reclaim space from other applications in other ways that can ease the pressure on everything else that you're doing. So you need to think about things like Evernote. Spotify is another one. Inside Spotify, you specify an amount of disk space that it can use for caching. Usually, I think it's set around the 10% mark, which is 100 gig. I've been in there and found sort of 30, 40 gig that, you know, maybe today I could do with that. So I'll just clear the cache in Spotify. Um, it can always re-download and you know, play on demand. So you can get that back to do a specific job with. I think the bane of my life, most of all, in terms of space hog apps, is ScreenFlow and Camtasia. They drive me mad on a regular basis. Camtasia can make duplicate copies of its recordings, which is fine. It's a five minute video for YouTube. Not so great if it's three and a half hours of an after hours. That could be 120 gig. When I save that file, I don't expect the temporary file to hang around, but sometimes it does. ScreenFlow is even worse. ScreenFlow just pukes its files anywhere. Honestly, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later, but it does. It just puts stuff all over. But coming back to um, space and where it goes and trying to track it, I have a nightmare on iCloud Street, a horror trilogy to share with you. Uh, part one, spooky photos. For this, for the rest of what I'm about to say to have any meaning, you need to know I have never used iCloud Photos. Never, ever on any device. So picture the scene. My iMac returns to Apple for some TLC under Apple Care. Usual debacle. They make that much of a mess of it, I end up with a brand new Mac. Now, there was no equivalent of the model that I had, which by the time it went back was three years old. We barter over specs. I end up with an SSD instead of my old spinning disk. I also end up with an external DVD <laughs> and a Mac three years younger. So I'm a happy bunny at this stage. Now, the returning Mac had been missing in action for over three months by this stage. So on its return, I already had another Mac and this Mac was installed in the studio. Now, that's important because it didn't need as many apps installing because it was going to do a specific range of jobs. Nor was it going to be a repository for a huge amount of data. And that was significant because the SSD was only 256 gig. Now, I wasn't overly worried about the size of the SSD because I'd used the same 256 gig SSD in my 2012 MacBook Air for years without issue. Sadly, the same could not be said of this iMac. Space just vanished overnight. Now, not small amounts either. I was often left with only 10 gig free, which was completely ridiculous. So I checked all the usual obvious places, documents, music, caches, temp folders, you name it, nothing. On checking, it was the system that seemed to be hoarding something, not me. So I delved into the library folder 
and after some investigation, there it was. A folder with a hundred gig of files in it. A hundred gig. Forty percent of the entire capacity of my hard drive. The folder was called iLife Asset Management. Now, my first thought, ooh, iLife Assets, but far too big for that. Um, the folder was present on all my other Macs, but on the other Macs, it was 2.5 meg or less on each of them. I checked the actual contents of the folder and I was horrified to discover they were in the most hideous mess of a folder structure. There were randomly named folders inside other randomly named folders with a single photo in each lowest level folder. I checked all the iCloud options. I checked all the photo options. Nothing was enabled on the Mac that wasn't enabled on all my others. Um, and these photos were my photos that had been taken the day before that at no point I had ever uploaded to Apple Photos. Um, I did the Googles. I was assured that deleting the folder was safe to do and would solve the problem. That was a case of don't ever believe anything Google has to say. I backed up the folder. I deleted it. Instantly, I recover the 100 gig of space. I blink and iCloud starts re-downloading all 100 gig. We did that dance together for a couple of times with various incantations uttered and relevant sacrifices to all the tech gods. Nothing solved the issue. I could hardly disable an option that had never been enabled in the first place. The good old turn it off and on again manoeuvre. However, during another rant about this issue, as I explained to Mike what was going on, I had an idea. No, not turning it on and then off. Heaven knows what that would do. I thought, what if I log out of iCloud completely and then delete the folder and then log back into iCloud again? Because it had to be iCloud getting confused that was causing the problem. So it was worth a try. I had the finder open showing the offending folder and I logged out of iCloud on the Mac. Before I even got a chance to nuke the folder, it vanished, taking its bloated 100 gig of images with it. So far, so good. But what would happen when I logged back in again, since I hadn't done anything other than log out? Do you remember when all this stuff just used to work? Mm, those were the days. I hanker for those days. Anyway, I sagely took a large dose of horse sedative and logged back in. I waited for the 100 gig to start downloading again. Nothing. Complete downloading peace. So I was right. There was nothing wrong with my settings at all. It was them. It was Apple. And that was an iCloud issue. Uh, if you do synchronise your images, you'll find this folder and there will be stuff in it. But I had never, ever done that. And I said to Mike, you know, OK, so it's randomly syncing with my Mac. I wonder if it's randomly syncing with anybody else's and putting my photos up there because I'd done nothing to enable that. Part two of the trilogy, the possessed app folders. I bought Affinity Designer via the App Store. All was well. I bought Affinity Photo. All was well. I added the iOS versions to the mix and at some point it all broke. No news there then. Broke as in Apple, what were you thinking? Apple demands so much control over the working of iCloud that often fixing it yourself is impossible. 
And what had happened was double clicking an Affinity Designer file in the iCloud Affinity Designer folder in a finder window opened it in Affinity Photo. Now, I did find a long convoluted fix and I followed it to the letter. It was absolutely hideous. It was a scary fix with terminals and deleting stuff. Oh, hideous. But I did it. It worked. Sanity restored. Only for the fix to fail when I needed to reboot. Which was all bad enough. But that farce was nothing compared to the fiasco of the Affinity Publisher folder. A case of now you see it, now you don't. So the Affinity Publisher folder in iCloud happily sat there during the first half of the beta programme. Vanished for the rest of it and took my files with it. There was no way to even see those files via the Finder, much less actually do anything with them. When the final version of Affinity Publisher was released, I bought it directly from Serif. The mysteriously missing folder appeared and then disappeared. And so ensued an interminable game of catch the folder. Luckily, I'd bought a copy of Affinity Publisher from the Mac App Store as well. And on Macs with that version installed, the folder was visible. But on my main Mac, it's still like the okie-cokie. Sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. It was that bad that I took the decision to move all my Affinity files and folders onto Google Drive. Now, that in itself uh, was a major pain because I had to force download them all from iCloud before I was even able to move them. Uh, once I'd done that, I created a shortcut to each Google Drive folder in the relevant iCloud folder. And it's been working perfectly ever since they landed on Google Drive. But obviously, that's not what's intended. It's not what Apple intend. It wasn't my intention, and nor was it the intention of Serif Affinity. It just doesn't work. And the third part of the trilogy is the seeing double issue. I was taking a scenic tour of iCloud when I discovered that I had two folders called Documents. One was the Apple version of the Documents folder, so it really was the Documents folder. The other claiming to belong to Scanner Pro, according to its icon. Now, Scanner Pro is made by Riedel, and they had an app years ago called Documents. And this folder is also used by that app. It's also been adopted bless them, by another read app, PDF Expert. I would much rather this folder were called PDF Expert, and then I would know exactly what it was. But there's no way to rename those folders for your own sanity. I wasn't having a good experience with iCloud, was I? Not really, no. No. Um, now, in terms of space, so that's why there's three reasons why leave the iCloud alone, walk away. Where iCloud works fabulously is for backing up your iOS device. That's the sole reason I have two terabytes of storage. It's the whole reason I give them money, because it means I don't have to manage two copies of a local backup. It just all goes up there and leave it be. Um, but we've had, I would say, success, great success. Reclaiming storage space using other apps. Now, one that I use is called Disk Doctor, which is an older version of a newer app that FitLab have called DiskAid. Basically, what those kind of apps do is you run them and you usually get to configure them to some degree or another. 
in terms of the size of files that is that are deleted or um, the type of files that are deleted. And I can sometimes get back with that 30, 40 gigs, something like that. You said you had a good experience with, was it Cocktail or Onyx? Uh, I did. I claimed back about 60 gig of space yesterday with Cocktail. I think it was uh, through uh, deleting caches and stuff. Yeah. So both of those are like maintenance utilities. They have a whole range of options that you can use, but one of them will reclaim disk space for you. I started thinking about a thing I used to do when we all had much smaller hard drives, which was use an application called XSlimmer. Did you ever use that? I've heard of it, but I don't think I used it. Um, it ripped out. It was basically when you had dual binaries, it ripped out half of them because you never needed the other half depending on what processes that you had. Another thing it would take out was language packs. In relation to language packs, there was another app called Monolingual, and that took out extra language packs as well. I was working on the principle that neither of those are going to work anymore, because if you think about it, it's, it's so tight, lo tightly locked down now, macOS. Surely you can't do that. In the same way, you can't easily change icons anymore. Um, I used to have a trick where I went in and changed the icons for zip files. But it doesn't really let you drill down that much without fiddling around with the ultra security where you've got to log out, log back in and sacrifice a chicken. So um, I've, I stopped doing that, really. What I do is more external storage, external hard drives or external SSDs and offload what you can. What you have to be careful of doing that, I've got perfectly usable drives. Uh, that I can't read on certain systems. So it depends on how they were formatted. If you want them to be readable on Windows and Mac, you're probably best off with uh, XFAT. But I tend to format them for Mac. So you have to be careful with that. But another thing is these drives that I've got, and, and maybe they're only 500 gig, basically a floppy disk these days. But I have problems with the drives because they're FireWire. And you're going to need conversion cables and all kinds of magic to make that work so you need to think about that when you're buying your storage i know at the moment pretty much everything is usb or USB-C. just just be aware of it you could have drives that you that would be wonderful to use and you can't because of the ports um now as we've discovered icloud not all cloud services are created equal and the best way to work with a cloud service is with files on demand and don't synchronize. Now, I've said iCloud is perfect for iOS system backups, but that's the only reason that I subscribe to it. My only other viable alternative when I'm making iOS backups is copious local hard drives and symlink system to wire them up to the Mac, and it still doesn't work 100%. Uh, my experience goes up to Mojave. I dread to think what would happen when I get Catalina on it. But in terms of cloud storage, I have a backup of my photos in Amazon Photos. I pay a little bit for that, but not that much for an entire year. Google Photos is another option. And then, of course, there's all the cloud services that you could should collect together and use the free space they give you. Dropbox, Google Drive, Box, pCloud. One thing I mentioned to you is I have seen in the last six months so many lifetime deals on storage. It's amazing. One that I spotted this week was to a service called Digu Premium. And for $99.99, 99 
you can get 10 terabytes of cloud storage for a lifetime deal. Now, I can't recommend it because I've not tried it. I like the idea of 10 terabytes and just shove stuff up there randomly. That would be very good. I think where, which one I would go for, because as I say, I've seen more than one of these, would depend on looking at how I can get my data up there and how I can get it down. So you may need to think about having access via iOS, whether it would work 100% with Mac, whether it's a Windows only thing. From what I've seen of those, they are cross-platform. How can they do that for a lifetime deal? Will they be there tomorrow? And will your data be there tomorrow? You need to make a decision about that, whether that whether it's a risk that you want to take. We haven't done that yet. Must admit, 10 terabytes is tempting though. Um, other thing to think about is just backing up. Could you move anything off the main hard drive? I remember a while ago, I set my write to drive for ScreenFlow to an external drive. That eased the pressure on the main hard drive, but oh boy, did it take a long time to save a file. The other issue I had with that was if it crashed, I was much less likely to recover a file. Now, one thing I do to use all of this cloud storage that I've got, that I've deployed to ease the pressure on the main hard drive, is actually accessing the storage. And I use one of two apps, depending on which one's working this week. Cloud Mounter and Expand Drive. We've talked about them both before. They both do exactly the same job. They enable you to mount as a system drive cloud storage space. And that could be anything. It could be Dropbox, Box, multiple Dropbox accounts, Google Drive, OneDrive. I mean, I couldn't use OneDrive without that because I don't use the sync thing that you do. They are both fantastic. I've stopped using the sync, actually. Was there a reason? Save space on the hard drive. <laughs> Exactly. So, but you, my problem with OneDrive was, and um, we talked about this a few years ago when I very nearly bought a Windows machine. I don't know how that happened. Um, it was the pointer files. I wanted to see all of my files, but only access them on demand. And they took it away, so I didn't end up with a Windows drive. But what Cloud Mounter and Expand Drive do is give you that option. So you see all the files but you only actually download them and store them locally on demand, which is just brilliant. And the other th reason that I would use that is to access multiple Dropbox accounts, because you might have three different box accounts or three different OneDrive accounts, and you can only sync and use the built-in thing with one of them. But Cloud Mounter and Expand Drive will let you access as many as you like from the same service. The other alternative that I found, I just wondered, because on the back of my Mac, and I think you have as well, but you're probably unaware of it, there's a card reader. There's an SD card reader slot. I thought, I wonder if you could put something humongous in there. So I went to have a look. What was the biggest SD card I could find? I know you've got one that's 400 gig. Yeah. And I thought, I wonder if they do a terabyte or even two terabytes. That would be cool. Uh, it would be the fastest storage for a start and no overhead with power and cables. And I did actually find one, uh, a one terabyte. What completely put me off it was the price. Now, I, I know what you're thinking. Yes, it was probably a kidney and half a liver. Uh, no, it wasn't. And that was what put me off. I thought there's no way that that card is a terabyte when it was something like 30 pounds. Because the 400 gig that you'd got was like 68. And I'm thinking, no, 
no. If it, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. But we are heading that way. You can easily get half terabyte SD cards. So that might be an idea as well. And finally, as I was looking for the SD cards, I hadn't noticed that you can actually buy two terabyte pen drives. No, I didn't know that. No. Again, what put me off was they didn't seem mainstream. They seemed to be sort of potentially dodgy imports. So I didn't go down that route and try one. But, you know, a year from now, that's probably going to be doable. So in conclusion, don't do anything without backing up everything at least three times. Uh, don't expect to be able to control anything on iCloud. It does its own thing. And internalize this mantra. If it can go wrong, it will go wrong. And I think as well, have at least one other cloud service ready to spring into action at two seconds notice. Now, Mike has lots of cloud services. And when I say to him, well, just put it on X, he's like, oh, I haven't logged in. Oh, I haven't installed the client. Oh, I haven't added it to Cloud Mounter. 20 minutes later, he's then trying to find the password for a service he hasn't used in three years. So have at least one of the cloud service. But the key to this is ready to spring into action quickly, Mike, isn't it? Quickly. Yes. Yes. He's, he's giving me the face now. Yes, because I've got Google Drive and OneDrive connected to CloudBound. Oh, very well done. Very well done. I'm impressed. Right. Anyway, uh, good luck, Jane. Let us know how you get on unless we frightened you witless and you're now recovering slowly. <laughs> now, late breaking news of a Christmas miracle. 57 after hours shows since the very first one back in mid-December 2018. 49 shows in 2019 alone. Like I said, a true Christmas miracle. And what's more, we're still going strong with a whole chat room full of folks every week. Our next live show is the 10th of January 2020. Uh, now, it's a live show broadcast on YouTube. We open with the often hilarious doings at MacBytes HQ this week. To give you an idea, last week's included the incident on Boxing Day when a car ended up in the middle of a neighbour's front garden on its roof, wheels still spinning, and all three emergency services in attendance. And the hilarious sight of me toting my Christmas gift of a three-foot Toblerone. Oh, yes, folks, it really was that big. I surpassed myself with that one. Four and a half kilograms, which is £10 in old money, of Toblerone. Three foot long. Just got to get through it before the sell-by date, haven't you? Yes, but since I've got till the end of January 2021, I should be OK. Then we have software demos, chat, questions and so much more delivered in our usual inimitable MacBytes style. Come and join us or watch on demand afterwards. Always better to be able to share the chat, though. And never without incident, either. Like last week, when my iMac completely locked up. Mm, as did mine. But we carried on, talking over a black screen at the very end. Some said that was the best bit. Thank you. Could that have been because you weren't on the show? Nice put down, sister. We're on fire today. Talking of MacBytes After Hours... It was an idea from After Hours that led to the creation of, wait for it, the MacBytes Slack chat. 
If you've never used Slack, it's a site where you can chat, share images, videos and more in dedicated channels based on specific interests. So in Backbytes, we have channels for random chat. That's very busy, actually. Freebies, future topics where you get to decide what we cover in upcoming shows. Critiques, get some feedback and advice about stuff you're working on. You can join us by going to macbytes.co.uk slash slack and carry on the conversation. Yes, come and join us. We're a friendly bunch and we don't bite. Although it has been said, Mac bites and so does Elaine. See what I did there? Very impressed. Anyway, that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As ever, we would love to hear from you. Come and carry on the conversation with us in the Slack chat, macbytes.co.uk slash slack. Or send your comments, questions and queries by email. Ooh, new email address for you. Pens at the ready. The crew at macbytes.co.uk. Uh, don't forget you can leave a comment on the show notes at macbytes.co.uk and you can sign up for the newsletter also at macbytes.co.uk. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash MacBytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So until next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. So, did you get that? Did I get what? I wasn't speaking to you. Charming. I was training Alexa. Yes, I got that. Training her to do what? Oh, um, nothing specific. That wasn't what he told me. I'll bet it wasn't. Now, what would he be doing? Hang on a minute. Alexa, who is the most fabulous personal digital assistant in the world? The most fabulous personal digital assistant in the world is MacBite Siri. What? Are you out of your tiny silicon mind? According to my crowdsource data, that's the right answer. Siri. Get in here right now. I think I know what you've been up to with Alexa.